second-hand shops in Ashford, picking up bits of old oak and Chippendale chairs for our furnishing. We wound up with a run up to town and a visit to Liberty's, and soon the low, oak-beamed, latticed-windowed rooms began to be home. There was a jolly old-fashioned garden with grass paths and no end of hollyhocks and sunflowers and big lilies and roses with thousands of small, sweet flowers. From the window you could see the marsh pastures, and beyond them the blue, thin line of the sea. We were as happy as the summer was glorious, and settled down into work sooner than we ourselves expected. I was never tired of sketching the view and the wonderful cloud effects from the open lattice and Laura would sit at the table and write verses about them, in which I mostly played the part of foreground. We got a tall old peasant woman to do for us. Her face and figure were good, though her cooking was of the homeliest. But she understood all about gardening, and told us all the old names of the coppices and cornfields, and the stories of the smugglers and the highwaymen, and better still of the things that walked, and of the sights which met one in lonely lanes of a starlit night. She was a great comfort to us because Laura hated housekeeping as much as I loved folklore, and we soon came to leave all the domestic business to Mrs. Dorman, and to use her legends in little magazine stories which brought in guineas. We had three months of married happiness. We did not have a single quarrel. And then it happened. One October evening, I had been down to smoke a pipe with the doctor, our only neighbour, a pleasant young Irishman. Laura had stayed at home to finish a comic sketch of a village episode for the monthly Marplot. I left her laughing over her own jokes and came in to see her a crumpled heap of pale muslin, weeping on the window-sill. "'Good heavens, my darling, what's the matter?' I cried, taking her in my arms. She leaned her head against my shoulder and went on crying. I had never seen her cry before. We had always been so happy, you see, and I felt sure some frightful misfortune had happened. "'What is the matter?' Do speak. It's Mrs. Dorman, she sobbed. What has she done? I inquired, immensely relieved. She says she must go before the end of the month, and she says her niece is ill. She's gone down to see her now, but I don't believe that's the reason, because her niece is always ill. I believe someone has been setting her against us. Her manner was so queer. Never mind, Pussy, I said. Whatever you do, don't cry, or I shall have to cry too to keep you in countenance, and then you'll never respect your man again. She dried her eyes obediently on my handkerchief and even smiled faintly. But you see, she went on, It is really serious, because these village people are so sheepy, and if one won't do a thing, you may be sure none of the others will, and I shall have to cook the dinners and wash up all the hateful greasy plates, 
and you'll have to carry cans of water about and clean the boots and knives, and we shall never have any time for work or earn any money or anything. We shall have to work all day and only be able to rest when we are waiting for the kettle to boil. I represented to her, even if we had to perform these duties, the day would still present some margin for other toils and recreations. But she refused to see the matter in any but the greyest light. She was very unreasonable, and I told her so. But in my heart, well, who wants a woman to be reasonable? I'll speak to Mrs. Dorman when she comes back and see if I can't come to terms with her, I said. Perhaps she wants a rise in her screw. It will be all right. Let's walk up to the church. The church was a large and lonely one, and we loved to go there, especially upon.